0: Amen. Thank you, Ike. Good morning. Welcome to Hillside Haven Community Church. This is the fourth Sunday of the month, which means it's a family Sunday, and so the kids are with us. Uh, Normally we have children's bulletins, and we do today, but they weren't printed as early as we wanted. We had uh, something I haven't seen in our printer. We got the blue screen of death on on the printer screen, so I had to restart it, and uh, people were running around grabbing it. So if there are any kids that do not have the children's bulletin or are lacking crayons or things like that? Can you raise your hand so that Mr. Ritchie can bring it down if it's not a kid as well that would want some. Like Stephen Page is raising his hand. Um, so can you bring those that to him? Anyone else? Okay. Uh, Last week, I was not here with all of you. Uh, My wife and I were celebrating our 10th anniversary. We were down in Washington, D.C., and after our trip, we were able to stop by in uh, Maryland to go see Luke and Cecilia, my brother and sister-in-law, and uh, attend their church with them. But one of the things that, that D.C. is known about, and, and there's many things D.C. can be known about, but right there in, in the middle of the town, what do you have all along that, that green walkway? What's on every side that you want to go to? Museums, the Smithsonian's, all of these fantastic displays. And obviously, they're very proud of those museums because everywhere that my wife and I would walk, we would see these posters giving different advertisements. You've probably seen them before. Um, Coming soon to this gallery, the works of such and such artists for for such and such a time. And we actually went to see some of the the places that they were advertising. And now I, I just want to ask you to imagine that you were on a trip and maybe it's in D.C., and you see one of these posters, and you look, and and on the poster, you read the sign, and you see that a world-renowned artist that you have heard a lot about is doing a live painting of what he is claiming to be his greatest masterpiece ever. And anyone is invited to come and observe him as he paints. Well, you know that this is the opportunity of a lifetime, and so you don't waste any time. You go right to that museum, and arriving on location, you enter into this great hall, and sure enough, in the middle of the room, you see the world-famous artist. Scattered around him are all the tools of his trade. More paints, more brushes, more artistic tools. You don't even know what they're used for. Scattered all around him. And right there in the middle is this ginormous canvas and easel. This has to be the biggest painting you have ever seen. It is in of magnificent proportions. There's just one problem. All you can see is the back. The artist is painting the other side. You think to yourself, you know what? This isn't a problem. I'll just walk around to where I can see it from the other side. But as you begin to make your way around the room, you see that access is blocked and there's a sign stating authorized personnel only. Looking to see if there's another way to the other side of the room, you notice there's all these posters and reviews of the piece of art that's being painted. They say things like a true masterpiece. A symphony of colors and composition. My greatest work yet. Well, that last sign kind of strikes you as odd because it sounds like it's something that the artist is saying and and you look at all the signs and then you realize all of those signs, all of those claims were made by the artist himself. The problem is he's the only one that's ever seen the art. At this point, you're a little frustrated. I mean, you're, you're looking at this guy and you're saying, man, you put all, all these advertisements about, around the town saying that this is some masterpiece. You're making all of these claims about your work and we're not allowed to see it? But you know what? You're like, well, let me just give it a shot. Let me, I'm not going to waste my time. Let me see. I'll just observe him painting. And so you find a spot and you, can, you watch him. And for a while, you're intrigued seeing all the beautiful colors that he's mixing and putting together, all of the, the wide and arcing strokes. You can't see the painting, but you're imagining, man, what is this going to be? But then as time goes on, you begin to observe that some of the colors he's using are, are far from attractive. Some of the techniques are are actually off-putting. The more you observe the artist at his work, the more you doubt that whatever he is doing is in fact producing a beautiful masterpiece. In your mind, you cannot fathom how those colors, those techniques, those brushstrokes could possibly make their way into anything meant to be beautiful. So at this point, you've had enough. You didn't come here to see the back of a painting. You didn't come to see someone making these big claims about their own work. And you didn't come to see someone using those colors and methods claiming that the end result would be beautiful. And so turning to leave, it's for the first time that you actually notice the space that you're standing in because before, you were so in a rush to get there in time, you didn't notice where you were standing. And so you look around, and what you see is that from floor to ceiling, the entire room is covered in pieces of art. At first, you would you you're excited because you're like, okay, well, at least I'll get to see something. But all of these pieces are covered as well. And they have a little word on them that says, temporarily covered will be on display along with the final piece of art. Unbelievable. What a waste of time. That's it. You're walking out the door, and as you're walking out the door, though, you see this this tiny little alcove to the side, and lo and behold, there's some uncovered pieces of art there. What you see is that the, the master artist has curated a small display of certain pieces that he's finished and he wants you to see them. Begrudgingly, you, you walk over because at this point you've, you've had enough and you look over and, and lo and behold, you can't deny it. The pieces are beautiful. It is clear that this artist truly is a master. Master. You even see some of those colors, some of those methods that you thought were barbaric. You see that in the mastery of this artist, he has found a way to make them beautiful. The artist is a master, the evidence is clear, but there's still a nagging doubt based on your last experiences. Because it's one thing to claim a work is beautiful when it's finished and other people have seen it. It's a completely different matter to claim that all of your works are perfect, all of the artwork is a masterpiece, and especially when you haven't even finished creating the painting. Can you really believe the words of an artist who won't let you see his final work until it's finished? Can you trust an artist who uses techniques and colors that make no sense? Will his work actually be a masterpiece? Will it really be beautiful in the end? When you consider the piece of art that is your life, have you ever found yourself asking those same questions? Have you ever wondered, does the master really know what he's doing? We've all heard the claims of the artist. We've sung the songs. We've read the verses. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Those are quite the claim. That's a lot of trust to ask from people who aren't holding the brush and can't see the painting. Have you ever wondered how the various pieces, the many colors and strokes that are part of this picture of your life, how they could possibly produce the promised masterpiece? Three years ago Tuesday, we all started getting the news, the email coming in that our pastor had passed away. And we're looking and we're saying, not these colors, not those brush strokes. This isn't part of a beautiful picture. You made a mistake. Is this really going to be a masterpiece? Amidst the bitter hardships of our life, it's hard not to ask Does the Master know what he's doing? Is the work that he is producing truly a masterpiece? Will it be lovely? Will it be good? Will it be beautiful? This morning, we are starting a new series in the book of Ruth, and Ruth is going to help answer some of those difficult and heart wrenching questions Is God good? Is he loving? Does he care? And if he is, what difference should that make in my life? See, the problem is that with our finite minds, we often can't conceive how the various pieces of our life could possibly work together. We're like the observer of the painter without being able to see the painting. We're seeing the colors and the methods that he's using and we're saying, I don't see it. How's that going to be a masterpiece? We cannot fathom how these dismal colors and painful methods the artist employs could possibly produce a masterpiece. We can't imagine how bitter hardships can produce sweet harvests. That's where Ruth comes in. Ruth is the small picture that points to a greater masterpiece. Ruth is the artist's work that he's saying, I want you to see the other side of the canvas. See what beautiful images I can make out of painful experiences. In Ruth, we are provided the finished work that gives us an insight into the final work we have not seen. In Ruth, we see the mastery of the artist who produces sweet harvests from bitter hardships. In Ruth, what we are going to see is that our response is to faithfully seek refuge in the Redeemer, for he produces sweet harvests from bitter hardships. That's where we're heading in this book. This morning, though, we're going to be looking at the introduction. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's really close to the beginning of the Bible. You're going to see Joshua, Judges, Ruth. If you get to First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you went too far. So it's, it's only like two or three pages in your Bible. So you want to find Judges and then just go the next book over. I need to give you this warning, though. These first verses of Ruth are not easy to read. They point to a period of immense pain. And yet, this is the start of something beautiful. The beginning of pain will actually produce something beautiful. Here's our big idea for this morning. Rest in God's redeeming love for he rescues those in distress. Rest in God's redeeming love, for he rescues those in distress. Let's read verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ruth begins with nothing but problems. There's no fairy tale beginning. This isn't the happy king and queen had the perfect princess. This doesn't start once upon a time. Before we've even met the first characters of this story, we're told there's a problem. What's the first problem? There's a famine. Quick aside, within Ruth, there's going to be a fair amount of ironies often linked to the meaning of names that the first readers would have understood because as they know what the meaning of the name is, they would see the irony. And here's where, where is this happening? It's happening in Bethlehem. Well, what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. There's no food in the house of bread. We're not going to look at all of the names and ironies there, but if you want to look at a very interesting study, just kind of research some of those names and see how they play into the story. But here we come to this idea of famine and we have to understand something. Famines are one of those things we read about that we can conceive of the concept of a famine, but we struggle to comprehend the reality. The fact is, for all of us living during this era in this country, it's likely that we do not comprehend the terror of a famine. Try to imagine with me what this would be like. Here you have a young family. Think if it was you. Maybe it's you and your husband, you and your wife, or maybe you're one of the teenage kids. And then this series of unfortunate events. Maybe there's a drought one year. Maybe a raid from a different people come the next year. Maybe there's this unfortunate fire that happens. Maybe it's a swarm of locusts, but right now, here's what you know. There's no food. And we're not talking about there's no food here and you might need to go on welfare and you've hit hard times and you're going to have to struggle in different things. No, no. There's no food anywhere. You realize that you, there's a good chance that you are going to have to literally watch your family waste away. We, we don't have that concept. We just read, and there was a famine. Let's get to the next part. Now, let me just, just point something. Uh, three and a half years ago, what, we were in the middle of, of a hard time in this country, and there was a shortage of something. What was the shortage? Toilet paper. How were people reacting? They were panicking. They were terrified. There's no toilet paper. Imagine if it were food. Imagine the panic that would happen in our country. Not if there's no toilet paper. There's no food. You're looking at your kids, and you're thinking, "What am I going to do?" So we come and we meet these first uh, the first people, and we come and we see Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, and and he's made a decision. They're going to leave. They're going out of Bethlehem. They're leaving the house of bread because there's no food there. And so they are going to sojourn to Moab. It's a country that's going to be about a 50-mile journey. So they're leaving. Now if you, sometime, if you might remember where Moab came from, we know their origin. It's a sad origin. They're the result of incest. Moab is the result of Lot lying with his daughter. This is that people. They've been enemies of God. These are the, their king is the one that called Balaam and said, you need to curse these people. But Instead, God blessed them. But now uh, Elimelech's leaving. He's taking his family. They're sojourning to, to Moab and they're going to remain there because of that first outward problem, because of a famine. But then we come to the next outward problem. What happens in verse three? Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Think of that, the drop, the wind out of your sails. We left one problem. We've managed to find food. We weren't going to die of starvation. We get there, and the patriarch dies. And as we can see, it doesn't end there. Sometime later, 10 years later, now we have the sons dying. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Killian died. Again, there's a temptation to read this too academically. We forget that these are real people. Imagine the wails of Naomi. Imagine her tears as she has not only buried her husband, she has not now buried not one, but both of her sons. Everything, all the dreams that she had, all of the grandkids she was going to hold, all of these things and these ideas of what her life was going to be, this full life, her expectations, and now she is standing next to the grave with no husband to comfort her. All she has is two foreign daughter-in-laws, different cultures, different gods, no family around her, no culture that she understands, which leads us to the third external outward problem we see. Naomi is alone. Notice what, what the, uh, how the author drives that point home. Because after, after he says Elimelech, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. <sighs> they were there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Oh, the bitter pain and hardship Naomi is facing. Famine, death, isolation. Many of you in this room, maybe you haven't gone through the exact same thing As Naomi, and yet you've tasted that same bitterness. You've had seasons in life where there has been a drought of blessing. You've had seasons in your life where you have walked in the shadow of death. You have had seasons in your life where you have felt completely and utterly isolated. You were alone, and it was bitter. I've been through those seasons. I've walked through those seasons with some of you. And in these seasons, what is the doubt that is whispered in our heart, even when we don't want it to be there? God, are you still here? Do you see what I'm going through? Do you know what's happening to me? If you do, do you care? How could you let this happen? How can this be part of your plan? How can this lead to anything good? How can you say all things work together for good when this is what I'm living? God, there's no sweetness in this bitterness. We get a glimpse of that bitter doubt in, in the words that Naomi says. If you look at your, your verse, we're going to see more of this next week, but look in, in your Bible to verse 19, the second half. Naomi has traveled back to Israel, back to her land, and, and she arrives there. It's been over 10 years, and, and the people that she used to know, they see her, and this is the conversation they have. They see her, and the women said, Is this Naomi? Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? As I said earlier, there's a significance to the meaning of names. Why doesn't Naomi want to be called Naomi? Well, because her name means pleasant. Delightful. Is that you, pleasant? Is that you, delight? No! There is nothing pleasant about my life. There is nothing delightful. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. If you remember the story in the Old, te- in the Old Testament earlier in Exodus where they have come that, that water and it's bitter water and they called it Mara. It's bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why does Naomi want them to call her that? This this is very important for us to see. It's not just because of what happened. Naomi wants them to call her that because of why she thinks it happened. Why? Who does she say caused this pain? The Lord. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Look what it says. Call me Mara for the Lord, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Why call him the Almighty? Because he's powerful enough to not have allowed this happen. The Lord, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Doesn't your heart just kind of break for Naomi in this moment? All she can see is darkness. You get a sense of the deep depression and anguish that that she's in this and and the question she's struggling with is the question that even the readers are going to struggle with. Is God good? Is he kind? Is he loving? Does he care? Throughout the story, we're going to come across characters who are loving. We're going to be introduced to characters who are kind. Ruth is loving and kind. We look at her as a model. Boaz is loving and kind. Is God loving and kind? So far, the the role we've seen of his in this story doesn't seem loving and kind. See, but the problem is that we don't see the whole picture. Even Naomi here in verse 21 demonstrates her lack of sight. What does she say in verse 21? I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. How did the book start again? That doesn't seem full to me. Famine? It's that, that element where in bitterness, hindsight usually isn't twenty-twenty. 20 in pain, we look back and we think it's so much better. Can you think of a different people in the Bible that did that exact same thing? What did Israel say when they're in the desert? Let's go back. It was so much better. This is what Numbers 11 says. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Their mouth is salivating at how good it was in Egypt. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I'm sorry, it cost you nothing? You were slaves. It cost you everything. This manna actually costs you nothing. Bitterness has an incredibly powerful ability to blind us to anything other than our pain. We forget everything else. It it is the, bitterness is that tunnel vision that all I can see is the pain, the sorrow, the hardship that I am facing right now. One of the greatest problems is that we can only see the outward problems. We don't see the deeper issue. Let's go back to verses one through five. Let's see, the deeper issue that was going on underneath the surface. What are the very first words of Ruth? It actually reveals a a deeper problem that isn't the famine. What are the first words? Look back at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Why does the author point that out for us? Is this just to give us a a time setting? Is this just an element where we're like, okay, so this is before King David, just kind of given of a historical, just like a history teacher might say, in 1816, okay, this is what was going on. There's an element of that to know that, but there's something deeper going on because those words point to, they reveal the spiritual thermometer, the spiritual temperature of Israel. Turn back one page and look at the last verse of Judges. Look at what it says at the very end of Judges. Judges 21, verse verse 25. This is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This statement is giving us a clue to the spiritual status of Israel. There's no king and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now we might wonder, okay, well how bad could that really be? How bad could it really be that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes? Well... Unfortunately, that verse is actually the end. It it starts back in chapter 17. That same verse is here in verse 25. It's the exact same verse that's in chapter 17, verse 6. And so you have these bookends where Judges has told all of these stories of each judge and, and their failings and what they did and how they ruled over Israel. But then you reach the end, chapter 17 through 21, and you have this appendix. It's, it's saying, we don't really even know if it's uh, at the end of the time. It just is happening. It's giving an illustration. It's saying, this is what life was like in, in Israel. Well, how does it start? We're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just... Give you. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't call them highlights. Let me just tell you some of the things that happen. It starts out by talking about a man who is leading his family into idolatry. These are the idols. These are the things that we are going to now worship as a family. A Levite walks by. A Levite who was set aside to be a priest to the holy God, and they call him and say, "Hey, don't you want to be a priest for us here? You can be our local priest for our house." And the priest says, yes, I will be a priest of idols. The stories continue and start talking about this man on a journey with his concubine. He goes to rest in a place. And what happens there? The men of the city bang on the door and demand that he come out so that they may know him, which is a euphemism. Instead, they take the man's concubine and rape her to the point that she dies. The result of that is a gruesome story where this woman is divided and sent out to the land and the, la- the, the nation rises up and to completely annihilate this tribe but then they don't want to completely annihilate it and so their solution is to kidnap women because they already killed most of the women and so they're going to kidnap these other women to be wives for the people. This is God's people? I mean, this, this is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very similar in the way that it's presented. We're looking and there is a far deeper issue. There is rampant sin. Everyone is doing what is right in their eyes. And what do we know about the heart of man? It is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. And so we come to our story and it says in the time of judges, it's telling us things are not right. How do we know things are not right? There's a famine. What do we know about Israel? What was the name that God gave for the promised land? How would they describe it? It was a land of milk and honey. Does that sound like a famine land? No, this was something they were looking forward to. We're going to be in this place. When they sent the spies in, did they look and say, well, it's going to be hard work to cultivate and get anything good out of this land. No, they said, this is amazing. We need two guys to carry a cluster of grapes. This is incredible. It was the land, the promised land that God had provided. Did famines just happen in Israel? No. God told them in Leviticus, he told them, he warned them in Exodus, and he told them, listen, if you do not follow me, if I'm not your king, you're going to suffer. And so we see that last words of Judges in there was no king, God was not their king, and everyone did what was right in their own land. And so what was the result of that? Famine. What should that have produced? Their, the sin of their land. What, what was the, the, the purpose of a famine? What was that supposed to be? A reminder, guys, wake up and repent. Now, not everyone holds this opinion, but it is my opinion that Elimelech was sinning when he went to Moab. There are different stories in scripture, even with King David, of of he's scared of Saul after he has killed a giant and he runs to the land of his enemies. This is the promised land. You're not supposed to leave here. The only reason you would leave here is because of my judgment on you. And yet here we see Elimelech. What should Elimelech be doing in this moment when he sees the famine, in this moment when he realizes that all of his people are doing what is right in their own eyes? He should have fallen on his knees. He should have said, God, forgive us. He should have led his family. And had he done that, God had told him what he would do. He would provide for them. If he had called out in his distress, God would have saved him from his trouble because that was the promise that God had given in the law. But instead, he doesn't repent. Instead, he says, I'm not going to stay under your judgment. I'm going to find another way. He ran away, and he died. I want to just talk to the dads real quick. That should fill you with fear. Thinking how the choices of the leader of a home Impacted the life of his family. Who carried the burden of his mistake? Yeah, he died. Naomi. This happens so often. I have been part of so many counseling situations where the husband is making a decision for his family and it's a burden that he is not going to bear. Husbands, dads, Men, we need to understand the impact of our choices and what burden they lay on other people. Because we're going to see later in this book that there are also times where someone does what is right and those blessings overflow to other people who don't deserve it. But in the same way, there is here an illustration where someone does what is wrong and their curse overflows. And the example of sin... And unrepentance didn't stop with him. It continued with his children. They took Moabite wives. Very clearly in scripture, God told them that was not to happen. They were not to intermarry. They were not to go to other people lest they depart from their God and worship idols. But Elimelech sinned and now his children are following a similar path and they are in rebellion. Just going to give another aside here real quick. If you know where the story is going to go, did one of those people that they marry end up working out? Yeah, Ruth is great. Two people in the Bible named after, two books in the Bible named after women. And this is the only one in the Old Testament named after a Gentile. It worked out to some degree. There is a danger, though, for us to look at the end results that sometimes God produces, that sometimes God produces a sweet harvest out of a bitter hardship, and we think, oh, well, then I'm justified to do whatever road I want to take. There are so many ways in which this happens. I'm just going to use the one that's here in our script, in our passage, evangelistic dating. Evangelistic marriage. Now understand, I am not talking about if you are married, you came to know Christ, and you are now trying to share the gospel with your spouse. Absolutely do that. I'm talking about pursuing a relationship with someone who is not part of God's people. Does it sometimes work out? Yes, but not because of you. Can God produce sweet harvest from bitter hardships? He absolutely can. But that is not the way it's meant to be. Don't look at the story and think, well, you know what? We should, Roger had 11 kids. Maybe one of them should have been thrown into a well and then you would have had lots of riches and he could have become the ruler of a country. It worked that way in scripture. Let's Joseph, one of your kids. You can't look at stories and use it that way. We need to see the deeper issues. So often we are bitter because we experience and taste the bitter hardships of this life. We experience them and question God, what are you doing? But we ignore the deeper issues. We ignore the reason life is bitter. We ignore our sin, our lack of repentance, our rebellion. Now, please understand, I do not want you to try to find a correlation with every time you experience hardship and then say, oh, what was the sin that I committed here? Three years ago, on the Sunday after Pastor Donna died, we did not start throwing lots and say, who, which one of you caused this? Which one of you caused the death of our pastor? What did Pastor Don do? I'm not saying that. Although there are times where our bitter hardships are because of consequences for our own sin. We see examples of that here. And so we should be aware and questioning, God, what what are you doing here? But there's something more that we need to understand. All bitterness is the result of sin. I'm not saying the one-to-one correlation of, oh, I did this and then this happened, that happens as well, but I'm saying that all bitterness, the fact that there is death in this world is the result of what? Sin. That's the deeper issue which causes us to ask the bigger question. See, the bigger question is once we understand the deeper issue is how is God going to respond? How is God going to respond to our sin How is God going to respond to our rebellion? How is God going to respond to our unrepentance? The expected response, we see a little bit of that in the first part of Ruth. Death, famine, isolation. There's an element where that's the expected and honestly, they deserved much worse. The unexpected response is the rest of the book. The unexpected response is is the book where God seeing our status of sin, our rebellion, our unrepentance, what we should expect is far worse than what happened to Naomi and her family. And yet we are surprised by what God does. Look at Psalm 107. Turn over there to Psalm 107. It's the passage that we heard read earlier this morning. In the mornings, um, I I read this psalm uh, earlier this week. Uh, In the mornings, uh, my family and I, we've been reading and praying through different uh, psalms. Uh, Some of you guys, we we handed out that book a while, uh, a couple months ago, uh, praying the Bible. And it's just that the method that is explained in that book. And so uh, on Monday the psalm we were going to pray through was Psalm 107. And that psalm, there's so many elements in the psalm that point to the story of Ruth. Not directly, but you can see these similarities between them. But it reveals the greater promise that this book of Ruth is going to show us. Listen to what it says in the very beginning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. These are the themes that we're going to see throughout this book. That God is good. That he is a God of steadfast love. That he is the redeemer who will gather people in from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. The psalm goes on then to give us four different stanzas. Four different groups that he gathered in and all of them in a place of trial and tribulation. The first stanza describes someone who had no place to rest. No city to dwell in. As we study more, one of the questions we're going to ask is will Ruth find rest? Will Ruth find a place to dwell Will Ruth find refuge? And yet what we see is that God takes that person who was looking for a place to dwell and gives them a place to dwell. In the second stanza, it begins of people who sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction. Who does that sound like? Naomi. She is sitting in the shadow of death. She is holding these weights of affliction. And yet, what will God do with her? Third stanza, we see people who were fools in their sin and they drew near to the gates of death. Were not Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion fools in their sin? Who did not just draw near to the gate of death, they walked through it. The final stanza talks about people who are seeking to build their own kingdom. They are going on ships and seeing out to find their, sailing out to find their riches. In the later part of the book, we're going to be introduced to this one individual who will not be part of God's plan because it doesn't fit with his plan, with his kingdom. But even though each of these stanzas describe different people, each of them offer the same solution. In each of the sections, there are two repeated verses. You might have noticed that when the people were reading, that each of them read two verses that were word for word the same. This is the first one. It's in verse 6, 13, 19, and 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Was that not our big idea? Rest in God's redeeming love for he rescues those in distress. Cry out to him. Trust him. Have confidence in him. The second repeated verse in each stanza is this. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Rejoice in his redeeming love. This is what we are meant to do. We are to rest in his redeeming love. We are to rejoice in his redeeming love this is what we're going to see as we progress in the story of Ruth. Right now, all we can see is the bitter pain. All we can see is the bitter hardships that they are facing because they have not yet cried out to God in their distress. But the most unlikely person is going to come onto the scene, the most unlikely heroine, and she is going to cry out to God. Rejoice in God's redeeming love, for he rescues those in distress. Rest in God's redeeming love. Rest and rejoice in God's redeeming love, for he rescues those in distress. So let's go back to our question. Is God good? Is he kind? Does he care for those who are lost, those in danger, those who sit in the shadow of death, those who long for refuge and rest? Can God truly be kind and good when bitter hardships are so unavoidable and sweet harvests so elusive? If you're here this morning and you're struggling with these questions, then these words are for you. God is good. He's kind and he cares rest and rejoice in the Redeemer. Now you, you might be sitting here and thinking, this pastor doesn't have a clue about what he's talking about. Clearly he hasn't experienced what I've experienced. He hasn't seen what I've seen or else he wouldn't be so quick to make the claims that God is good, that he's loving, and that he cares. And let me just tell you, I'm not assuming that I know what you've been through. I don't know what you've lived through. I don't know the horrors that you've seen and experienced. I don't know all the things that you have tasted, but I have no doubt to say that you have experienced bitterness in this life. And so I understand that it might be difficult right now in light of those bitter trials to see how anyone could claim that you, that we should rest and rejoice in our Redeemer. After all, if God does exist, can we not echo the words of Naomi? The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. In light of such bitter hardships, how can we rest and rejoice in any Redeemer? Because of this. Our call to rest and rejoice in the Redeemer is not an invitation in spite of the bitter hardships. Our call to rest and rejoice in the Redeemer is because of the bitter hardships. We're not trusting him pretending like bitter hardships don't happen. We are trusting him because bitter hardships happen. Because only he can transform them into a sweeter harvest. Only he can take the bitterness of this world and transform it into something beautiful. Only he can take the drab colors of pain and sorrow and create a multicolored tapestry and masterpiece. How can I say that? Because it's the picture he's been painting since the very beginning. The reality is that all the bitterness of this world stems from the same fateful fruit. A fruit that was willfully and rebelliously first savored by Adam, then subsequently tasted by all mankind. But the succulent sweetness promised by that seductive servant soon soured. Before the fruit even left Adam's mouth, it proved far more bitter than any promised sweetness. Thinking to be like God, humanity lost what made us most like God. The righteous became unrighteous. The free were enslaved. The living condemned to death. The sweet soured by bitterness. And so we see that this bitterness was deserved. This was the fitting consequence of rebellion against our holy God. Through one man, sin came into the world, and the, re- the result of that sin was bitter death. And to our dismay, that infection spread. It did not stop with Adam. The bitterness of death passed on person to person because all sinned. And yet hope was not lost. In the midst of the most bitter of hardships, God offered a sweet promise. One day, the bitterness would be removed. One day, a redeemer would come. One day, sweetness would be restored. And so God's plan, his perfect masterpiece began to unfold. Fleeting glimpses, small vignettes here and there like the book of Ruth that pointed to a greater story. Pictures that revealed the artistry of the master who was composing his perfect masterpiece. Thousands of years, humanity sought to see more of the picture God was painting. They searched for greater clues that revealed the means in which he would transform bitter hardships into sweet harvests. But no one expected for him to do it the way he did. Not once could we have imagined that in order to offer the sweetest gift, God would have to drink the most bitter cup. But that's what happened. Just as all bitterness stemmed from the same fruit, all sweetness pours out from one sacrifice. Through the first Adam, we taste bitterness. Through our first champion, we see defeat. But God sent a new and better Adam, a greater champion, who came to bring a sweeter harvest. But the price was great. Until the wrath was absorbed, the debt paid, the judge satisfied, the bitter cup drunk. Until then, there could be no sweetness. And so the better Adam drank the bitter cup. The cup of wrath meant for all who had eaten of sin. He took it and he humbly, lovingly, sacrificially drank every single drop. For our sake, he drank all our bitterness and poured out all his blessings so that all who believed in him would see their bitter lives redeemed and taste a sweet harvest. So is God good? Is he kind? Does he care for those who are lost, those in danger, those who sit in the shadow of death, those who long for refuge? Can God truly be kind and good when bitter hardships are so unavoidable and sweet harvests so elusive? Yes. He's good. He's kind. He's loving. He cares. How can we say that? Because every bitterness we've ever tasted was far better than what we deserved, and yet when we cried out from our trouble, God redeemed us. He delivered us out of our distress. We know he is good. We know that he loves us. We know that he cares because the cost of our deliverance required that his son taste more bitterness and face greater hardships than we ever did or could. This is our good and kind, redeeming God. He drank the bitter cup that we could partake of the sweetest harvest. Rest and rejoice in God's redeeming love for he rescues those in distress. This is the story we're going to see in Ruth. This is the small snapshot of redemption that is pointing to the greater story. I hope that you'll come back and, and go with us as we go through the rest of this book over the coming weeks. Because what we're going to see is that the sweet harvest that God produ- the God one who produces sweet harvest from bitter hardships, is that we need to faithfully seek refuge in Him. We need to rest and rejoice in God's redeeming love, for He rescues those in distress.